0: That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Brexit Unspun, the Financial Times podcast where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. Today, we're going to catch up with the progress of the exit talks after EU leaders ruled in December that sufficient progress had been made in the first phase of negotiations to move on to discussions about Britain's future outside the bloc. To discuss this, I'm joined by George Parker, FT political editor, Alex Barker, Brussels bureau chief, and Gemma Tetlow, economics correspondent. So, George, if I could start with you. Is there any sign that the government is healing some of its divisions as we head into the next phase of talks, or that it is a clearer idea of what it wants the final deal to be?
2: Well, certainly there's more of a feeling of calm around the cabinet, I would say, at the moment, since the deal that was struck by Theresa May in Brussels just before Christmas, a sense that at least that progress has been made, a deal has been done. And then just before Christmas, we had the first meeting of the cabinet to discuss where they think the end stage should end up. And the... The mood around the cabinet table was fairly calm, mainly because no decisions had to be taken. So ministers around the table set out their positions, most of them in fairly good-natured terms. Although I'm told that Michael Gove of the Eurosceptic Environment Secretary broke the uh, calm a bit by saying he was shocked that some people seemed to be ignoring the result of the referendum. And it was a sort of jarring moment. But generally, I would say, an uneasy air of calm was descended on the cabinet. But of course, it won't last because in the next few weeks, Theresa May will have to come down and make a decision on what kind of British relationship she wants with the EU after Brexit.
1: So what are the government's priorities at the moment?
2: Well, the priorities at the moment are to um, formulate a position. And there are two things they have to do. First of all, they have to work out where they're going to start the talks or where they'd like to start the talks. And the second thing is where they'd like them to end up. And the problem with both of these things is they're happening in something of a vacuum because whatever is decided around the cabinet table, there's always a very good chance, as Alex would tell you, that the EU will say no or no or nine at the first opportunity. But the first thing they have to do, at the British level at least, is decide whether they want to approach these talks from what they call a top-down or bottom-up approach. In other words, top-down approach, where we basically say we're aligned with Europe on everything, where would we like to opt out and pursue our own regulatory course, or those like Boris Johnson, the Eurosceptic Foreign Secretary, who would prefer to have a bottom-up approach, where the assumption is we can do whatever we like in all areas, apart from those areas where we choose to opt into EU standards. This may turn out, as I said, to be a fairly academic exercise because the EU may say, well, you can't do this cherry-picking in any event.
1: And within this, is there any picture emerging of the end state of what they want the end state to be?
2: Well, then that is the really big question. And it's something that Theresa May will address in a series of cabinet meetings between now and the end of January. They've had one, there are two more bigger ones to come, where they'll discuss how they want this end state to look. I think it seems to me that a sort of a view is emerging that what they would like is for the British economy to be as aligned as possible to the EU to get maximum market access but with areas where they would like to be able to diverge and so this was a sort of process what they call Managed Divergence in London, the idea that we would negotiate some sort of mechanism with the EU where uh, assessment would be made if we decided to go down a different regulatory path, if we deemed to be undercutting the EU, for example, on environmental standards or labour standards, that there would be a punishment applied in terms of market access. So it's that kind of model the British government is seeking. Now, whether that is going to be on offer at the end of the day is a different question.
1: You've discussed that there's divisions within the cabinet from top down and yeah. bottom up. Are there any other divisions and what are they?
2: Well, yes, I suppose the fundamental split in the cabinet is between the pro-Brexit ministers, people like Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Liam Fox, David Davis, who would like to see the most amount of divergence, really, between Britain and the EU. They think the whole point of leaving the EU is that we should be able to set our own path. And those led by Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, who take a more economically pragmatic view, I, I would say, that they think that, by and large, most sectors of the British economy have expressed a preference to staying within the EU framework, you can list them. You could talk about aviation, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, automotive. Some of the industries that are most exposed to European trade are the ones which think actually we want to stay part of the EU regime simply because at the end of the day, to export into the European Union, we will have to apply European rules. They're not squeamish about those rules being enforced by the European Court of Justice. But of course, that is right at the heart of the ideological split in the British Cabinet because there are a whole load of ministers who think one of the reasons for leaving the EU is we break out of the whole EU. EU framework, including the judgments of the European Court in Luxembourg.
1: How responsive is Mrs May being against this backdrop towards the concerns of the business community?
2: I think since the election in 27, her failed election in 2017, the relationship with business has changed completely. Before that election, she made a deliberate effort, actually, to sideline business to, as part of her effort to reach out to working class Britain. She wanted to break the idea that the Conservative Party was beholden to big business. I think since then, there's been a complete sea change. Business is taken a lot more seriously. The concerns of business taken more seriously. So she is concerned to make sure that business is as protected as possible. But at the same time, she knows that she has to be able to deliver this deal in the House of Commons and to her own party. And that's really where the tension is between going for what would be the maximalist approach in terms of business and a deal which she can sell to the hardliners in her party. And that's the balancing act she's going to have to strike. And we think she's going to set out where she has arrived at in this difficult dilemma in a speech on Europe sometime in February, which will be an evolution of the thinking she set out in Lancaster House in January 2017 and then in her Florence speech in September last year.
1: So is there a role that Labour and other opposition parties can play in influencing this debate? I think there is
2: really the big moment of maximum pressure for the opposition parties and indeed pro-European rebels in the Conservative Party will be when Theresa May comes back from Brussels with her deal. There was a decision taken in the Commons after a Tory rebellion just before Christmas that there will be a meaningful vote on the final deal that Theresa May comes back with. And if the deal looks unacceptable to business and looks economically damaging, there will be an opportunity for opposition parties and rebels to amend or try to amend the deal that Theresa May has brought back from Brussels and to send her back to Brussels to get a better deal. For example, you could see a situation where the Labour Party puts down an amendment saying that actually it's all well and good, but we should remain a part of the customs union. One way to address the issue on the Irish border, to preserve supply chains in complicated industries like the car sector. And then if that was adopted, then there's an interesting question. Would Theresa May go back to Brussels and try and get a better deal? Possibly. Would Brussels give her a better deal? Probably not. And then you get into a standoff and the possibility, of course, then that the uh, government may be forced to call an election. And at that point, Theresa May would have to call the bluff, I suspect, of Tory critics who will be confronted with the question, do you want to bring down the government on this issue and effectively bring in what the Conservative Party regards at least as a Marxist government led by Jeremy Corbyn?
1: What would be the timing on that?
2: Well, Theresa May and indeed Michel Barnier, the chief EU negotiator, want to agree the outline of a future relationship by the autumn, possibly by October, but I suspect this will probably slip into November. And that will then have to be presented to Parliament and indeed to the European Parliament for their consent before Brexit Day in March 2019. So really the moment of maximum opportunity for the opposition parties and maximum danger for Theresa May will be sometime around the late autumn of this year.
1: Alex, what about the EU side? Is unity holding up among member states about the next phase?
3: It certainly seems to be for the moment. It's been a remarkable feature of all this period since the referendum. And as we enter this second phase, you do see a change of tone, though. And while I think it's overstating it to say kind of divisions are emerging within the 27, you certainly see new priorities being emphasised by different member states. The first phase was quite easy. Everyone has, to some extent, an interest in protecting the rights of their citizens who might be in the UK, and those who are paying towards the EU budget have pretty much the same interest as those who are taking out of it in making sure that the Brits paid their dues. Now, all of them have slightly different points of interest and emphasis, and you can see groups emerging within the 27. The kind of old Hanseatic League of, you know, the North Sea traders with the UK, Netherlands, Belgium, who have deep trade ties that to some extent they want to maintain, fishing links that are quite singular to them, that, you know, say the Slovaks have not got as big an interest in. You then have the French and German and Brussels kind of camp, which is looking at the kind of bigger interests of the 27, the legality of what's being done, the precedents that are being set, and their own commercial interests in different areas. And then you have the kind of Central Eastern European countries that had an interest particularly in the rights of their citizens in the financial settlement. And now we're looking at this thinking, "Mm, you know, maybe we should be a bit softer with the UK, we've got security interests. So those are the kind of three camps that you can see emerging. And that will become more pronounced over time, I expect.
1: Now, what appear to be the red lines amongst the EU member states? And what are they prepared, do you think, to concede?
3: they're pretty explicit. I mean, ever since the start of this process, they've made them pretty clear the integrity of the single market. It's a bit of a kind of Heath Robinson-like contraption, the single market built over many decades with compromises between countries opening up markets, countries wanting those markets opened up, you know, the kind of links between free movement and free movement of capital and things like that. They don't want that divided up, by the UK leaving. They don't want those compromises reopened among themselves. And so there's a definitely that integrity of the single market is something they're saying is one of their big red lines. And I think the other big one to take into account is they don't want what they call the autonomy of their decision-making compromised. And what they mean by that is if you're a member of the EU and have a 10 to 15% say in what's going on in terms of lawmaking, they don't want a country to be able to leave and set up a nice committee and a trade arrangement and a regulatory cooperation group that gives them more than a 10% say on what kind of rules you're establishing with the EU and how rules can change within the EU. So it has to be, for them, a very asymmetric relationship with the UK after this, where if the UK wants to be close, it will have to have given up its voice on many areas of policy. Those are two of the big kind of principles that you'll see repeated through this process.
1: And what do you think are the most difficult issues to resolve?
3: Well, it's a negotiation, and the UK has certain cards to be able to play. I mean, one obvious one is an area like Fish, where the literal neighbours of the UK catch most of their fish in British waters. French fishermen, Dutch fishermen, Belgian fishermen. And for them, access is incredibly important. The UK, in turn, sells it back to the continent. And so you can see trade-offs like that across many sectors that will be emerging and the tactics that each side is going to take up will be clearer. And I think one of the big, big questions is going to be services. That's an area where the UK is particularly interested in maintaining some degree of continuity. And I don't think the 27 have yet decided whether to exclude services because it's in their interests. Jobs will come to the 27 or to offer this at the last moment in order to secure other areas of economic interest in the relationship with the Brits on goods or something else. That is a conversation that's starting. Uh, You can see member states mapping more clearly what their own interests are, and it's going to play out not just up to Brexit Day, but this is a kind of longish negotiation we're entering into.
1: Turning to you, Gemma, you carried out some interesting research earlier this month on Britain's trading options outside the EU. How important will it be for the UK to replicate existing EU trade agreements with third countries? In
4: terms of minimising the disruption to businesses already operating in the UK, the most important thing for the government beyond reaching a deal with the EU, which George and Alex have just talked about, is going to be trying to replicate the trade deals that the EU currently has with third countries like Canada, Switzerland and Turkey. Liam Fox, the trade minister, has said that replica versions of these trade deals will be ready to sign one second after midnight on 30th March 2019 at the moment of Brexit. But getting to that point won't necessarily be particularly easy. There's a lot of detail in these trade arrangements that mean it's not as simple as a copy and paste job. And it's also possible that some of these third countries will see this as an opportunity to reopen the deal. We've already seen that with South Africa looking to loosen some of the restrictions on agricultural trade and food hygiene. Which
1: other countries hold the greatest economic potential for the UK to trade with?
4: If we look beyond those existing deals, the piece I wrote earlier this month looked at the economic fundamentals of other countries and particularly how those are likely to evolve over the next 30 years and what that says about which countries may offer the best export opportunities to the UK. The reason for looking sort of 30 years hence rather than just thinking about what's going on today is that trade deals can take quite a long time to sign. So you need to think about who do we want to be doing trade with over the next decade, not just right now. And the two main factors that research consistently shows are important in determining trade flows are distance and size of economies. Even with modern communication technologies, distance really matters. So the EU27 are likely to continue to be our biggest trading partner over future decades. Other countries like China, Canada, the US are also likely to be important in future because these are very big economies and they will remain so. When we look at other countries, some that are perhaps less important today may become more important in the future. So rapidly growing countries like Nigeria, Bangladesh, Malaysia may well be more important in future than they appear at the moment. In contrast, some countries like Japan and South Korea are actually expect to see population declines over the next few decades. So, They may become relatively less important as trading partners for us. Will there be political barriers to doing deals with some countries? The analysis I did earlier this month, and what I just said was purely looking at the economic fundamentals. Of course, the reality is that actually to be able to do trade deals, politically, those countries need to be in a position where they're willing to do trade deals and they have institutions in place that mean that British businesses feel confident doing that sort of trade. The trend of recent years has been towards growing protectionism in many countries. So the UK government will have to tackle that as it goes out to try and negotiate new trade deals. Alex, to what extent do you think the EU27 will allow the UK to make these
1: deals with third countries?
3: It's an incredibly complex area legally, not just because we're talking about more than trade agreements. The EU has around 750 agreements of different kinds that are potentially relevant to the UK that it will lose on Brexit Day. But it's also about The sequencing we'll see over the next few years, what rights the UK would have in a transition where it's following EU law broadly, is no longer a member state, but is bound by EU obligations, and then after that, what it's able to negotiate in the transition that would apply afterwards. The EU position is shifting a bit. At first, It was to say, well, look, all these agreements aren't going to apply. Good luck, UK, and you should go and speak to these third countries about what's going to happen. Now I think the EU's coming to realise that it's a bit more complicated for them if it's a very messy exit. Countries might be coming to the EU and saying, well, hang on, look, what should we expect in legal terms? They might start making demands of the EU. So I think what we're edging towards is a situation where they expect the UK to come to the EU. Together, they'll agree to notify all these countries that while the UK is leaving the EU, they want to kind of carry on as before for a couple of years, where the UK would still be able to benefit from some of these agreements. If you think through a single agreement, say EU-Korea, in the transition, Korea will have full access to the UK market because the UK is in the customs union and the single market. But because the UK has left the EU, it won't have the same benefits that an EU country would have in accessing the Korean market. It's very complicated. And I think the emphasis will be now on trying to simplify things as much as possible and then allowing the UK to discuss with third countries what kind of arrangements they may make for the day after the transition, but doing it in a managed way where no agreements are entered into that would affect UK obligations during the transition, and wouldn't cut across EU interests in a very open way during that transition. So I think this is the kind of managed process they're edging towards slowly here.
1: So Alex, what are the two sides working towards for Brexit Day itself?
3: They call it something called a future framework agreement. Some British politicians would tell you that is almost a trade agreement, a treaty in draft form. Legally, they can't completely agree it and ratify it while the UK is still an EU member, but they basically get everything ready for the days or months afterwards, and then that can be adopted, ratified, and people can start preparing. In Brussels, if you talk to the senior people involved in this negotiation, they'll say, well, you know, the framework agreement is really setting a direction. What you're doing is a, a scoping exercise. You're kind of eyeing each other up as trade partners, working out the broad parameters of what this relationship will look like. Is the UK going to be inside or outside the customs union? Is it going to be inside or outside the single market? Will it be following European jurisprudence in different areas? You do the really broad brush questions. And this is a document that's, you know, 30 pages, what the EU leaders called a political declaration, whereas the Canada trade agreement was something like uh, 1,500 pages. So that's the end point, which would be October, November, December perhaps. And the really interesting question that you'll see once these negotiations really get up and running after the spring is how detailed will this really be? Some people here will say, well, there's a limit to what you can manage in five or six months. We'll try and make it clear. But actually, we've got two years of transition to negotiate in. And really, this is just Ensuring that we're pointing ourselves in the right direction. Others will say, look, we need clarity. Business needs clarity. We can't just allow the UK to walk out of the EU without much changing. We need to get a sense of where this is going, what's not possible. We need to pop the delusions in London as they would see it. And that it's going to be quite a confrontational process over the next few months, and therefore, including more detail than I suspect some will be comfortable with in the UK, because it might not cover all the kind of benefits they were looking for. And so this tension between the vague outcome before Brexit Day and something that's a bit more clear and defined is going to be one of the big ones through the spring and summer, I think.
1: Well, that's all we have time for. Thank you, Alex, George and Gemma. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Brexit Unspun. We hope you'll join us then. And in the meantime, please review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. If you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, you can also email us at unspun that's all one word, at ft.com.